Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 217, European Science on Station. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. We've covered a lot of unique experiments taking place on the station, from different companies to human research to Earth science most recently, even the science under the U.S. National Laboratory. We've been covering a lot that's been coming from the U.S., but we're talking about the International Space Station. So we thought it'd be fun to bring in our international colleagues to discuss what it's like doing science from their perspective. So joining us from the Netherlands is Dr. Angelique van Ombergen, Discipline Lead for Life Sciences at ESA, or the European Space Agency. She discusses science from the international perspective and shares what's going on right now aboard the station. So let's get right into it. Enjoy. Angelique, thanks for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Yes, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to uh, to discuss some of the ESA science we're doing on board the station. All right. Uh, well, that before we get into that, I want to know, because this is the first time we've really, I mean, we've talked about science a lot on this podcast, but never really got the perspective from the European Space Agency. So um, to, to get us started, I want to understand a little bit more about you and your role. I described it a little bit in the introduction, but I think you can do it a little bit better. better. So so um, what, uh, what was your education? What led you to um, your current role at ESA? Yes, uh, so I did a PhD in medical sciences at the University of Antwerp in Belgium. Um, my background is in the vestibular system. Uh, and during my PhD, I, I partly um, investigated how the brains of astronauts adapt to space flights. And the rationale behind that was that, of course, the vestibular system is very, let's say, triggered and challenged in a microgravity environment. So we thought that not only at the vestibular system itself, at the organic level, there would be changes, which has already been researched for a few decades now, uh, but also at the level of the brain, you know, like the, the, the neural projections, we thought that there would be changes. Um, so this was a little bit the, uh, the let's say, the inside of my, my PhD. We started to also research that and then uh, we did MRI scans, which is a non-invasive sort of brain scan where you can look at the brain both from an anatomical point of view, so the structure of the brain, but also from a functional point of view. So, for example, how different brain areas work together when you do a specific task. Um, and actually what we saw was not uh, precisely what we anticipated in advance, but I think that's also the nice thing about science that it always brings you somewhere <laughs> that you didn't expect in advance. Um, so actually during my PhD, I already worked with the European Space Agency and also with Roscosmos uh, because we, we tested European and Russian uh, yeah, astronauts and cosmonauts. Uh, and I actually joined ESA in 2019. Uh, so I've been with ESA, let's say two years and a half now. Um, I started as a science coordinator uh, for human research, and I recently took a new position as discipline lead uh, for life sciences. All right. Well, awesome. You're in a new position and everything. What? what uh, I'm, I'm curious, Angelique, uh, this is what, what you're talking about sounds extremely complicated. Was there some inspiration um, earlier in your education or, or maybe in, in your life that really made you want to dive deeper into this specific topic? 
Um, well, I think it, it grew a little bit organically. Uh, as I mentioned, my background was in vestibular science. I came mm -hmm. in this lab that also had a long history of, of you know, testing astronauts in space before and after. And it, it, it grew a little bit organically. And as we went along, I really got interested into space medicine uh, and got more familiar with it. So I, I got to know the community. It was, of course, also very, very exciting and interesting. And then there was this, you know, this position at ESA available. I applied, I got it, and now we're here. It was, it was really more of an organic kind of growth thing rather than a prefixed or pre-termed uh, thing that I was pursuing. Awesome. Okay, very good. Um, now, now you you mentioned you you've been at at ESA a, a couple of years now, and we've never really explored just just what ESA is all about here on the podcast. And so I was hoping we can start there, Angelique, if if you can just sort of give us an an overview of of uh, ESA as as a space agency. So so um, uh, just just to help us to understand how how that space agency works, uh, uh, I guess yeah. compared to to what our audience is used to, which is NASA. Yeah, of course. Uh, so the European Space Agency uh, has 22 member states, which are full member states, let's say. But we also have some associated member states or cooperating states like Canada, Slovenia, Lithuania, and, and Latvia. Uh, so, of course, we, we really stand as a, let's say, multinational uh, kind of agency, which, which is very interesting because you get to combine the inputs from, from all these different member states across Europe, uh, and you really get to represent, let's say, the full European science community. So that's, that's very interesting. Um, this also means that ESA is, 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 is scattered across Europe. We have different sites and establishments across uh, Europe, and each establishment has a little bit its own um, specific focus. Uh, so, for example, I'm based in the Netherlands at Aztec, which is basically the largest ESA establishment. We have two to 3,000 people on site, uh, mm -hmm. and it's, um, let's say it's really the, the technical and scientific hub for our European space missions and our activities. So we do the the technical and the scientific preparation there, we do the management of the big ESA space projects, and we also have, uh, let's say, the, the human spaceflight activities or the science there. Um, we have our headquarters in Paris. This is where our director uh, general uh, resides and where we have, the, let's say, some of the program directors and where the policy and decision makers are also uh, based. Um, then we have different establishments in Germany. There's ESOC, which is uh, the Center for Space Operations, so basically where satellites are tracked and controlled uh, and where there are systems monitoring also of the payload operations. Um, also in Germany is the European Astronaut Center, which is, of course, the home of the European astronauts and where they also train, and a lot of the NASA and the other international astronauts also train. Um, and also the medical support uh, is, is located there. Um, we have ESRIN, which is located near Rome in Italy. That is the ESA Earth Observation Center. Uh, so basically we have Earth Observation satellites, large, uh, we also have a large archive there of environmental data, and uh, the ground stations and ground segment facilities are coordinated there. Um, then we have the Astronomy Center at ESAC, which is located near Madrid in Spain, um, which is where we have the science operations for the astronomy missions and the planetary missions. Um, we have AXAT in the UK, which is more space applications and telecommunications. Uh, and then we have also worldwide facilities. For example, we have uh, the Houston office, we have a Moscow office, uh, and then we have, of course, also the Europe spaceport in French Guinea, where we uh, launch the satellites um, like Ariane and the Vega launches. So this is, let's say, a little bit ESA uh, in, a, in a nutshell. 
<laughs> awesome. I mean, what what surprises me? I'm trying to think about it compared to to NASA, right? We you call them member states, and and they're they're all in different countries. And you said you have places just really really around the world. I'm thinking about at NASA, we have different centers across the country. But when we mm -hmm. work together, we we're on calls, we're on Teams calls, and everything, and we we all speak English. You, what you're talking mm -hmm. about here is is different countries uh, all speaking different languages. How does that work? How do you guys work together across different languages and cultures? Yeah, well, I think for the language part, it's not so much of an issue because the formal languages of ESA are English and French. Uh, so oh, okay. we, we all are supposed to be um, very good at speaking at least one of these two languages. So I, I have to say for, for my work, most conversations are, are done in English, of course. Hmm. Um, but definitely the culture thing is... is um, is, is quite fascinating to see uh, because yeah. even um, I'm, I'm from Belgium originally and I currently live in the Netherlands. We speak the same language because I'm from the Flemish part of Belgium, uh, but the culture is so different. Uh, so you really have to consider that when you work with, with people coming from different countries, different cultures, and you need to be very mindful of that because something that can be acceptable in your culture might be very offensive in another culture. And I think this is something that people working in the space environment are used to because, of course, we also collaborate at a, uh, an international level and a worldwide level. And there you have, I think, something very similar. And it's it's mm -hmm. very fascinating. And it's also, I think, very enriching to to get to to work with people with these, you know, very different uh, backgrounds. A hundred percent. It's 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 wonderful to experience so many different cultures. I absolutely love it. So, so Angelique, tell me about how, how it all comes together, right? So, so you, you're, we're going to be talking about science specifically, uh, at ESA, mm -hmm. um, when it comes to getting everyone's input as to the science that you want to put into a specific increment or into a specific time period, how does that work where you come together as an organization and get the science you want, work with NASA and get it all integrated to put into a mission? Yeah, so I think it's, you know, we, we start, of course, with our European science community, because that this is also where we, we get the expertise and, and the insight from into the different research topics that we have. So I think when I went through the different ESA centers, you could, you could already get a knack for the, the, let's say, big science pillars that ESA focuses mm -hmm. on. Uh, so these are astronomy, Earth observation, planetary sciences, uh, fundamental physics, human space flight, robotic exploration, solar system science, and, and so on. And let's say that these are the big pillars. Now, in the team that I work, which is a SciSpace team, SciSpace stands for Science in a Space Environment, we have, let's say, three big disciplines. So we have life sciences, that is anything related to biology or space biology or human physiology experiments, um, or, or even psychology experiments, of course. We have physical sciences, and that re really ranges from astronomy, fundamental physics, material science, and so on. And then we have planetary science. Um, we, of course, also have overarching topics like radiation, which are very multidisciplinary. And how we usually go about is that we, we internally have a specific interest or need to investigate something, and then we really work very closely with our European science community. So what we often do is that we consult with the community, we release call for ideas where they can apply to, or we release announcements of opportunity that they can then solicit to, and that we then, of course, select the best science proposals that address a specific topic that we have set uh, up front. Um, once a specific experiment is selected, then of course comes this whole full 
swing uh, of, of other teams, let's say, involved, because of course we select and we coordinate the science, but there's of course payload integration, there's hardware mm -hmm. development. So there's a lot of other actors that come into play before we can actually do something. And I think this is very similar on, on the NASA side, of course. Yes, yes, of course. Um, now, now I'm trying to get a full picture. I'm continuing with this theme, uh, Angelique, of, of trying to get a full picture, really, of of ESA and and how how they're folded into the mix of, uh, particularly with 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 space station operations. Um, and I think one key element here we talked about the different member states uh, and how you're getting this science coordinating it and and getting it up to the International Space Station. The space station itself has its own uh, ESA module, the Columbus Laboratory. Can you give us a, a general overview of, of what that is uh, on, on board the International Space Station right now? Yes, of course. So uh, the Columbus module is, is basically something that we're very proud of, of course, because it's the European Laboratory in Space. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been up there since 2008. Um, in essence, it has different payload racks, uh, which allow us also to do uh, really a variety of science in, in all the different disciplines. Um, so it goes really from human physiology to psychology to, to Earth observation and astronomy. Um, so the biggest modules or, or racks that we have up there is the European Physiology module, which, as the name already supposes, is related to human physiology and psychology experiments. Um, there's the BioLab, which is basically um, a facility that allows to do biological experiments on, you know, microorganisms, cells, tissues, and so on. Uh, there's the Fluid Science Laboratory, or, or FSL, which, which really focuses on, on liquids uh, in, in microgravity. Uh, there's the European Drawer Rack, which is a sort of modular or flexible experiment carrier, which, uh, let's say, allows for a quick turnaround capability and also uh, more opportunities that, you know, that increases smaller opportunities that do not need a specific uh, complete rack uh, to do uh, inside. Mm -hmm. um, into, last year, Columbus was also uh, equipped with, um, with Bartolomeo, which is, uh, let's say, Bartolomeo platform is the first European commercial uh, platform. It was done together with the Airbus company, and it really allows an easy and quick access to, to space. So, for example, we can do exobiology experiments on there because, of course, you have the exposure to the space uh, environment. Um, so it really allows for a very end-to-end, uh, -end, let's say, access for any external payload that you would be interested in flying because you have the, an obstructed view of Earth, you have direct control on the experiments from Earth, which is also very interesting for certain science teams. And you also have a possibility to retrieve samples. So again, from an exobiology standpoint, this is of course very interesting. Hmm. All kinds of fantastic capabilities on board. Now to continuing with this theme of getting a picture of ESA, you mentioned some of the member states and some of the different uh, operations and priorities that are happening at some of these. Um, give us a quick view of the operations side. We, of course, have mission control here in Houston, and we have a bunch of different centers monitoring at NASA across the United States. But at ESA, where what are the key players in terms of the operations for, for on-orbit on board the International Space Station? Yes, uh, so of course we have the Columbus Ground Control Center, or uh, CallCC, as, as it's known by its call sign, let's say, which basically supports all the communication to the European uh, Columbus uh, module. Uh, this is located in um, Oberpfaffenhofen, which is uh, yeah, near Munich in Germany. It's located at the uh, DLR site there. And it's really this the control center that has the direct link to, to Columbus in orbit. Uh, so it commands and controls the different European space laboratories 
laboratory systems, so the different tracks, as I already mentioned. Uh, it coordinates the payloads on the ISS that we have, or the European payloads, and it also allows to operate the European ground communication network. Uh, so this center, of course, as any operational center, provides support 24-7, uh, basically. Um, and there is one room, let's say, for operations and one for preparations for, for example, training controllers. Um, apart from that, we also have USARCs, and USARC is short for User Support and Operations Centers. These are also scattered across Europe, and uh, basically ESA created this User Support and Operations Centers to support ISS users, like, like for example, science teams that we have. So these user centers, um, they are responsible for the use and the implementation of the different European payloads that we have. Uh, and they basically conduct, uh, you know, they conduct preparation uh, of experiments. They conduct the operation of the experiment. So basically these users are the link between science teams on ground on one hand, and then of course the space station on, on the other hand. And they work very closely with the Columbus Control Center to, you know, get data uh, distributed and so on. And um, yeah, so, so this is basically how we work, let's say, uh, also again in a nutshell with regards to the direct link uh, to, to the Columbus module. Fantastic, Angelique. That was perfect. Laying a laying a great foundation for for what um, you know how ESA is organized and and how how really uh, the operations are working to support the science. And that's really the focus of, of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, particularly uh, the 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 science that's happening uh, right now with uh, Thomas Pesquet on board the International Space Station. But before we go into that, I know you know ESA's been doing science on board the station for um, you know years, for decades, really. Um, so, and I know you've been a part of that uh, in a sense. So, can you give us an understanding of just you know just some of the things you've worked on, maybe or maybe just that that uh, just highlights from ESA science in the past that'll help us to set a foundation for for some of the stuff that that uh, that you're doing. Yes, of course. Um, so. Of course, there's the Brain DTI project, which is the project that I worked on myself before I joined ESA. So I might be a little bit biased in this one, but uh, <laughs> it's 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 a very interesting project, I think, from 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 several aspects because the brain is 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 a, of course a very important organ when you consider it in general. But it's been very under researched when you consider the space environment, and I think the reason for that is that it's a little bit it's not so easy to to really investigate it on orbit. So you need to really set your investigation around pre and post flight, uh, let's say, uh, measurements, which is not always so easy for, for, for several reasons. Um, so with the Brain DTI project, and this is actually a project that is currently still running in the ESA portfolio, the team is really trying to uh, get a better insight on how the brain adapts to space flights uh, and how certain changes in the brain could potentially have an impact on the performance uh, of, of astronauts. And I think this is always an important nuance to make that, you know, with all these very fancy measurement methods, like an MRI, for example, you can you can really measure very, very small differences. But that doesn't necessarily always mean that this also has an impact on the performance of astronauts. And I think this is, of course, as a space agency, this is where we are particularly interested. Because mm -hmm. if it starts impacting, you know, the performance, then we really need to try and mitigate it or we need to try and overcome it. So I think this is um, a very important um, experiment. And uh, I know that the, the Brain DTI team is now also working with a lot of, uh, of the NASA science team. So it's also very interesting and very nice to see this international collaboration uh, across seas, uh, overseas, let's say, uh, because this is not always so, so evident. So that's very nice to see. 
Um, another experiment that, that I really liked, and I was not involved in this because this was before my time I, that I joined ESA, was the seedling growth uh, experiment. And, and actually, I, I recently got a, a very interesting lecture on space agriculture and, and food production in space, which is not something that I was very familiar with before. Uh, so the the insights or let's say the, the background of the seedling growth uh, experiment is that of course as everybody knows plants can generate uh, breathable air and of course they can also be a source of food so from a space mission perspective these are two very interesting uh, aspects so what this experiment uh, tended to do was they wanted to look at um, better understanding how gravity affects uh, uh, the plant development and also how light can uh, impact plant development. So they looked at the seeding growth of, in different gravity conditions uh, and also in different lightning conditions. And then afterwards, what they did was that they extracted the RNA, uh, RNA and they sequenced to basically identify all uh, differenti differentially uh, expressed genes. And they could show that uh, there was one gene that was different, uh, that was expressed differently across all gravity conditions, and some genes that were uh, appeared to be differently expressed in, in different conditions. And this shows that um, you know these genes in particular were, were associated with light, chemical, and hormone responses, and so on. So it shows that this also really has implications for the current use and also the future implementation of uh, you know plant uh, bioregenerative plant support systems in space, which I think is very interesting, and which I also find particularly interesting about this is that of course we, we can run the ISS missions already very well uh, with what we currently have foreseen there's you know cargo supplies and so on so we don't really need this but this is really an experiment that is preparing us for you know missions that go beyond that and I think that's that that's very interesting um, another experiment that I think is very nice is the sodium loading in microgravity or the solo experiment. This was also from before my time, but this basically looked at astronauts' blood volume um, in relation to their dietary sodium intake uh, in space and on Earth. Um, so this experiment basically assigned two groups of astronauts. There was a low sodium and a high sodium group um, for five days, and all the other nutrients and, and water would, were kept constant across the two groups. And in general, they found that astronauts uh, tend to retain more sodium in space and that they also excrete more sodium uh, on Earth. Uh, so this is also, I think, very interesting because it shows that really more, more research is needed into the role of sodium in, in blood volume regulation and also to show whether these changes, uh, which could potentially have um, an impact on the health of astronauts, are temporary or, or permanent. So this is just, let's say, a few examples of some, some interesting experiments I think we have. You picked super fascinating examples, uh, Angelique, and 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 um, I'm thinking about you know just a lot of these you, you talked about. Uh, they 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 even preceded your time at ESA, and I wonder if um, you know there's there's a lot of interesting information like like the sodium and and even just you know what's happening with plants, what's happening with the astronauts. Um, you know, has there been follow-ups to those experiments to further investigate, or or even in in cases. Uh, ha has any of the lessons learned from from these investigations been implemented for uh, current spaceflight or even on the ground? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think what we often see is that, yeah, of course, in general, uh, space research goes goes quite slow uh, because it's especially for human physiology experiments, you know, we need to get to a certain number of, of crew members that can participate. And often this takes a few years. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's it's not always so easy to, to directly, you know, after you get some first results to directly translate them back. But for example, for the sodium experiment, we know that um, the, the team that has been looking into this is now also running similar studies on ground in, in some sort of ground analogs like bed rest, which, which is, is simulating um, microgravity conditions uh, mm -hmm. during a long-term bed rest study. Uh, and of course, this also helps to get to this higher number of, of subjects and which allows to get, let's say, um, more rigid conclusions, which of course you can then try to translate into an actual countermeasure or potentially it has applications for patient groups on earth and so on. But I think in general, this, this often takes a little bit of time. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, right? All the more reason to continue doing the great science. Um, let's get into alpha. Let's let's understand what's uh, what some of the experiments on board uh, that that uh, particularly Tomah has been doing. And and uh, I think even in your couple of examples of just stuff that Isa has done beforehand has shown just the variety of experiments. And so that's why I'm really excited to get into alpha today. Let's start with, uh, there, there's one experiment, um, I think it's called Suture in Space, and it's about tissue healing. Can you give us a, a description of what this is? Yes, um, so I think this is also a very nice experiment because, as I said, it is really preparing us for these uh, longer-term uh, uh, space missions that go beyond, let's say, the ISS and beyond low Earth orbits. Uh, because especially when you consider medical emergencies, if we have a medical emergency on the ISS, which we, we hopefully will not have, but I mean, if, if this is the case, there are some possibilities to get to the astronauts relatively quickly. Um, I'm not saying it's easy, but it could be done relatively quickly, especially if there's really an emergency. When you consider a mission to the moon or Mars, of course, this is going to be more difficult. So wound healing, in essence, is, is something that, of course, is, is very important. And the suture in space experiment is basically looking at how tissues heal potentially differently in, in weightlessness as compared uh, to Earth. Uh, so what they done specifically for this experiment is that they took living tissue from biopsies, they soon they, they cut it and soon it back together on Earth, and then they send it to space to see um, how the healing mechanism is, is potentially impacted by microgravity. The samples will then, of course, be, be retrieved back and, and investigated on Earth, but it can help to understand how humans heal and, and how um, yeah, tissue, tissue uh, heals uh, in microgravity. Fantastic. Now, you're, you, there's a lot of human experiments, it seems, even in this, just the a couple of examples. I know you have one that's, uh, I believe, a technology demonstration. It's called the ESA Life Support Rack. Is that it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so the ESA Life Support Rack, um, the background of the experiment is that, of course, anything that you need to launch into space is expensive and, and often cumbersome, and there's often a, a limitation to what you can send into space. Uh, so previously, how it was done is that oxygen on the space station was extracted from water that was brought from Earth. Um, and as you can imagine, this is this is not a very uh, efficient way of, of doing that. So <laughs> ESA has been looking into designing a new system to basically recycle the carbon dioxide into oxygen and to reduce the amount of water that must be shipped, uh, say, into space. 
Um, so the ESA life support rack will, will move to the tranquility uh, module and there it will produce oxygen for up to three astronauts. Uh, so this is part of you know, the ESA aim of creating a closed life support system, including also water recovery and, and food production. And we hope again that this will help to avoid or, or minimize any costly resupply missions that we, we currently need from, from Earth. So this is basically a tech demo in a bigger picture where we really want to look into advanced life support systems. And again, this is really preparing for the future. Yes, we're going to need those smaller systems. Perfect. That's that's an, an awesome example. Uh, I know you're also exploring radiation. Yeah. Uh, so we have the Lumina experiment, uh, which is, um, and this is this is not fully my background, but I can give you a very high level um, overview sure. on this experiment. But uh, basically, what it will look at is it wants to demonstrate uh, the reliability of a fiber optic dosimeter in measuring the radiation inside the space station. So it has two spools, and it's actually quite cool. But it has two spools of kilometer long fibers uh, that will hopefully improve how fiber optic cables can cope with long duration space flights. And of course, again, this is this is knowledge that's going to be important to prepare again to for these future missions, especially longer uh, that are going to be longer and further away from Earth, and then to help us protect astronauts and, and the hardware in particular that's going to be on these missions. Very interesting. Now you're looking at you're looking at the hardware, you're looking at the uh, you're looking at the astronauts themselves when it comes to radiation. Um, another one that I found really interesting was, um, and it's such a, it's such an oversight if you think about it, but it's, uh, you know, when you ship stuff to space, you gotta, you gotta pack it in, in material and that material can take up space. And I know one experiment you guys are looking at is something called EcoPack. Yes, exactly. Um, so, so this one is also, um, trying to make, let's say, the, the launches more efficient in terms of uh, yeah, space and, and weight. Uh, so normally, all hardware that is flown to the ISS is, is packed in fireproof foam padded Nomex bags. Uh, as you already mentioned, these are necessary to protect it during launch. Uh, but of course, once the astronauts are, or once the hardware arrives on, on the station, this is, this is unnecessary and it takes up space, which, yeah, it's quite... Um, constraints uh, at the ISS, maybe not at mm -hmm. the ISS, but in, in essence for space missions. Um, so the EcoPack is basically, it, it looks at a, a solution that is testing reusable, recyclable, and even edible pack packing materials. So they have three different sets. So one is experiment hardware that was packed, um, which is made of recyclable and biodegradable blister strips. That's one. The other one is the food processor hardware that, that was packed in consumable materials like gingerbread. Uh, so might even be tasty to, to try. Uh, and um, I mean, this could, could even go a little bit further. This, this is also just a testing, but you know, in essence, if this works, then you could also develop uh, a tool that can allow astronauts to prepare their meals according to their nutritional needs and available stocks. And, and you could basically add uh, the, the packing material to, to that list. Um, and then there's also the freshness packaging. It's also demonstration and that, you know, as the name already suggested, it aims to keep the food on the ISS fresh for mm -hmm. a longer period of time. Uh, so moving the current shelf life from one week to more than 15 days. Uh, so, so of course, this would also be, a, I think, an interesting gain uh, there for the astronauts. Very interesting. Yeah, really cool kinds of packaging. Uh, there, there's another one that's a, a human experiment, I believe, and it's called uh, Dreams. What's this one about? 
Yes, uh, so the DREAMS experiment is basically, uh, I mean, again, here's often the names already, uh, they, they already tell you a little bit on what the experiment <laughs> is about. but uh, Which I like, DREAMS, yeah. Yeah, exactly, is, is monitoring the astronaut's sleep. Uh, so mm -hmm. basically it's being done by a, by a headband that's worn during the night. It's also a tech demo. And I think the, the most interesting thing is that often sleep assessment is very cumbersome. Uh, this is true for, uh, you know, uh, participants, research participants on Earth. They often complain that it's not very nice to wear this fully equipped assessment. The mm -hmm. thing with dreams is that they, they really want to um, basically have this as a less cumbersome way of monitoring sleep uh, and potentially yeah, dreams, as the experiment name already suggests. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, it's basically a headband that's fitted with an EEG sensor uh, using specific electrodes. And hopefully uh, this will allow to assess sleep in a more easygoing way. A little bit more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. You don't want anything yeah, too invasive exactly. when you're sleeping. Awesome. Um, I'm going to probably butcher this name, Angelique, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Is it called Pilote or, or Pilot? Um, it looks like Pilot with an E. Yeah, good question. I think even internally, there's no agreement on the pronunciation of the <laughs> okay, name. I'm I've glad heard it's already not different just me. Uh, pronunciations, yeah. <laughs> Uh, what's that um, one about? Yeah, so Pilote, I, I will also say it like this, is, is basically building on previous neuroscience experiments that already started a long time ago, even still at the Russian space station, uh, Mir. Uh, so basically what this does is, yeah, again, the name already suggested, it's like a pilot kind of, uh, the idea is pilot. What they want, what this mm -hmm. experiment wants to test is providing tactile and visual feedback to astronauts when they're operating robots. Um, so again, here you have a sort of a VR he headset and a haptic device, uh, which basically creates the feeling of pressure and touch when you, you tele-operate a robotic arm. And basically by getting these tactile and visual feedback, it, it, it would be more intuitive uh, to, to operate it. Um, so of course, I mean, I think this is, this is quite evident that if, if this actually works, then of course this, this could really improve, uh, for example, control interfaces on the ISS and also future spacecraft um, operations for, for, for example, lunar and Martian missions where, you know, astronauts will, will need to teleoperate rovers, for example, on the surface. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense because you, you wouldn't have to worry about that delay. That's that's very interesting. All right, so we've talked mm -hmm. about a lot, right? We've talked about radiation. We've talked about different packages. We've talked about uh, human science. There's one that's, with, that's more focused on the living environment of the space station, and it's an, it's an mm -hmm. air quality monitor uh, called ANITA-2. Now, what's this one? Yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, as you can imagine, astronauts live in a close uh, environment at the station. So within this closed, let's say, atmosphere, um, different irritating poisonous or even carcinogenic gas compounds can, can basically uh, be present. So they cannot just open the window uh, to, to get a breath of fresh air. So, so they really rely on, on, on the air uh, system. So air quality is, of course, monitored continuously uh, during a mission, also to make sure that this does not negatively impact the crew health and, and well-being. Uh, and in case there are any harmful contaminants, then, then a rapid response can be, can be implemented. So mm -hmm. ANITA stands for Analyzing Interferometer for Ambient Air. It's an instrument that will constantly monitor the air quality. And the nice thing is that it's considerably smaller than its predecessor, which was ANITA-1, which already flew at the station in, in 2007. It has also improved software and it will run automatically in the background. So astronauts do not need to continuously monitor 
it. It's running, you know, uh, independently. And the system is, is not only useful for, for, for this patient, but also for any other confined spaces, uh, of course. Um, an example that we typically use are submarines, but I think even now with the, with the pandemic still ongoing, that potentially this could be very useful for a lot of people who were stuck in, for example, a very small living space that they had available during the pandemic. Right. Uh, so I think this has definitely wider applications. Very, very interesting. Um, th there's another one, and and I I, I can't really grasp grasp my head around it. So so I'm hoping you can help me to uh, to understand what this is. But it's called ultrasonic tweezers, and it is it is a no contact acoustic tweezer. Um, I'm mm -hmm. I'm curious what this is. Yeah, so also here, just very briefly, this is not my area of expertise, but I can give a sure. very high level overview. Um, so the ultrasonic tweezers is, as you already said, it can basically move objects without touching them. So it uses ultrasound to basically trap uh, objects. And by changing or moving the sound beam, it is then eventually also possible to move an object and even with very great precision. Um, so what this experiment wants to do is evaluate how this technique can basically be used in, in microgravity. Uh, mm. so, so they have an experiment where they capture small plastic and, and glass marbles and move it over, let's say, an obstacle course. So, so it's potentially even a little game, let's say. Um, it's a tech demo and it will stay on the ISS so that you know scientists and astronauts can use it to investigate different materials. They can use gels or liquids and, and you know even hazardous materials can be can be dealt with or, or you know biological material. The fact that you don't need to touch it is of course very interesting because then you don't have the risk of contamination, for example, in the case of biological material. Uh, so, so yeah, I think this is very interesting, and it also has applications for, you know, terrestrial benefits. For example, in healthcare, because this could be moved and is already being looked at to use it, for example, to remove kidney stones or deliver very targeted medicine. Very interesting. Um, there's a there's a couple more that I wanted to go over because I find I, I find they're fascinating. Um, there's there's Another one that has to do with radiation, uh, we talked about the, I think it was the Lumina experiment a little earlier, but this one is specifically about radiation damage to mm -hmm. DNA. Now, what's this one about? Yeah, so DNA uh, MH uh, or DNA damage, the experiment is, is really looking at how cosmic or how the exposure to cosmic radiation basically impacts aging. Uh, so we already know that, you know, as we age, our DNA sequence and structure changes, and it can also lead to certain, you know, cells and tissues, are, they're going to function less as we age. We know that exposure to radiation can basically damage DNA and it can accelerate this process. Um, but we also know that it can be modified in, let's say, specific positions of the DNA by by aging and this is basically what we call the epigenetic clock so we want to, this experiment wants to better understand um whether this form of aging is also influenced by by cosmic radiation and if so mm. by how much is it influenced how, how big is the impact so of course we know on earth that we're protected from the cosmic radiation but as astronauts go be further and especially considering also moon and martian missions they're going to mm -hmm. be exposed to a bigger amount of cosmic radiation so this experiment is really trying to determine what the effect is the added effect, let's say, of cosmic radiation on on, on the, the DNA. Um, and they do so by taking saliva samples. Okay, that's how they get it. Yeah, and that'll be, yeah, that'll be important for, for long duration missions, also for, for moon missions when we're, when we're uh, 
part of there as the yeah. as the uh, uh, Artemis program. Um, couple couple more. One of them is is looks pretty interesting. It's called immersive exercise. What's this one about? Yes. Um, so again, I think the name already uh, spoils a little bit the surprise, but it's basically <laughs> doing exercise in a yeah in an immersive environment like like virtual reality. Mm-hmm. So as um, as you know, astronauts need to exercise quite a lot to to compensate for bone loss, muscle deterioration, and so on. Uh, and of course, if you need to daily work out for two hours in, in the ISS, which is not a very, let's say, the, the environment doesn't change uh, a lot, then of course, this can become very repetitive and, and maybe even boring, which can, can lead to really lack of motivation while this exercise is just so important for them. So the immersive exercise really tries to, let's say, break the boredom and the monotony by adding virtual reality to the exercise. So what they do mm-hmm. is that um, with the VR, you can basically, when you when you, when they're on the bike ergometer in space, they can basically ride through landscapes on Earth. And these are videos that were filmed in 360 degrees on Earth. And uh, yeah, you can change the speed depending on how fast they bike. Uh, and, you know, they can pick different settings, for example. So, so I think that's very nice. Um, and for example, Thomas has, has requested to, to have, uh, you know, a, a trip around Paris and, and the monuments, uh, because of course for him that, that feels like home. And of mm-hmm. course it's this, this can also be mapped individually. So depending on, you know, the crew member and their, uh, personal preferences, you can, you can basically give them different programs that they can, uh, exercise in. And also here, I think this is also something that a lot of people would have liked to have potentially in the pandemic. Um, I, I remember right. when they announced that we could not go outside, that we bought actually a bike ergometer for insight, uh, just mm-hmm. to make sure that we could still at least do something uh, for exercise. And I would have loved to have one of these devices to not just stare at the same wall uh, the whole time. So yeah, yeah I think I, it, it would be very interesting to, to add this to the exercise uh, regime. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious to hear, yeah, the the feedback on on that. And and you're right. I mean, that's it's true for all of us. It's something I think we can all relate with. And and it's definitely true for the astronauts. They go on the same treadmill, the same bike, and they're staring at the same wall. So so that'd be interesting mm-hmm. feedback to get. Uh, very very cool. Uh, yeah. one more, one more, and then and then we'll uh we'll we'll uh we'll wrap it up. But I found I, I think just in general, um, this is that this is not anything specific, but. What we've captured here today is just what what um, you know. There's just a huge variety of of different investigations and in different disciplines. Um, I know for Isa and especially for Toma, I see him doing it all the time on orbit. Is he he's very engaged in different education activities, making sure that um, you know he's he's doing not only the experiments, but he's he's doing his job to to educate uh, younger audiences and, and to inspire them to do great things. Um, so, so some of the things that I know that maybe Thomas is doing, but but maybe just in general things that have done in the past by ESA uh, as part of education uh, activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the education is always a very important aspect that, that really should not be you know overseen or forgotten because of course through these uh, space missions and especially th- through the astronauts as let's say role models you can really um yeah reach a very wide audience and you can really inspire let's say a, a younger um guard of, of 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 students and and you know uh, young boys and girls who have an interest in potentially science uh, and it's a great way to you know encourage uh, stem uh, in, in in the general audience or in the younger audience but also to promote certain aspects. Think of, you know, 
uh, the fact that they exercise so much. Potentially, this could also promote a, a certain healthy lifestyle. So, so there's a lot of things um, coming to that. So, for the Alpha mission, uh, there's the Astro Pi uh, challenge, um, which is basically using two very very small computers, which have um, let's say sensors and cameras, which are based in the station. And students from all over Europe, up until the age of 19 years old, they have the opportunity to run their own computer program in orbit um, during their school year, let's say, by joining two challenges. Uh, so uh, they have mission zero, where the teams work to display a greeting message um, and the station's temperature humidity uh, on the AstroPi computers. And Mission Space Lab basically um, uh, allows them to design a scientific experiment uh, to investigate life in space or, or life on Earth. So it's really to, to get them involved directly uh, into something that is then actually running in space, which is, of course, a very great incentive uh, for them. Um, there's also Mission X, Walk to the Moon. Um, where future space explorers basically uh, train like astronauts for the Mission X challenge. And again, I think this is a little bit promoting this healthy lifestyle, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's focused on health, fitness, and also healthy nutrition. Um, so Kness and ESA are, are both supporting this initiative uh, since it, it's launched in 2011. So it's been running for, for a very long time. And Toma, of course, has encouraged uh, the the the, the uh, children participating in a 2021 uh, edition. So, yeah, basically they practice scientific reasoning and teamwork and they, you know, participate in hands-on training, uh, you know, a little bit training like an astronaut. This is a little bit the, uh, the background to that. Fantastic. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of other educational uh, activities. All of them are, are very nice. And I think, you know, the background to all of them is really to get them involved. It's, it's not just a, a unidirectional thing. It's not, you know, Tomai is explaining something and, and they listen. It's really to get them involved. It's really to get them hands on, to consider things, to really work on stuff in a team, sometimes even internationally, have it run on orbit. And I think this interaction is, is very motivating for them. And I think that's very nice nice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Angelique, this was just so fantastic to go through. Uh, I, I know I, 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 uh, I'm glad I sent you a lot of these ahead of time because, because there's a lot of, a lot of different experiments and, and you able to just go through all of that in a, in a short amount of time was just fascinating. And even the inside look into ESA, um, I want to end with more just questions about just your experience and, um, uh, working with ESA and just, just what you've learned, um, uh, with working with so many different uh, uh, member states and researchers in the ESA community and with NASA, um, just just having an understanding of what you have learned over the course of these past couple of years um, with just the importance of microgravity, uh, understanding the, the huge variety of, of different experiments that are going up uh, all over ESA and, and you helping with, with a lot of it, um, it, particularly with your focus uh, on human research, um, but just your your perspective on what you have found in in engaging a larger community uh, with with microgravity research. Yeah, I think that's a, a very great question, but sometimes also a difficult one uh, to to answer. Um, I think in essence, it's a very fascinating field to do research, and it's so unique. Uh, and that is, I think, what I like most about it that mm -hmm. and i'm going to just speak from my personal experience working of course with with human crew which which is always a little bit um 
different than, for example, when you do a physical sciences experiment. But the fact that you can, and, and I think I'm speaking also because I have a background in, in more clinical uh, fields. Mm -hmm. But normally when you test, for example, patients who have a certain disease, you only see them when they already have the disease when they are already a patient. So then you need to set up an experiment, you need to compare them with controls, which you try to match as good as possible, but it, it's really not ideal. The very nice and unique thing about astronauts is that you get to test them before they fly in space, during space flight, and then afterwards. So this means that you can really test one individual from, you know, before a very extreme exposure to a very extreme environment, during and after and i think this shows us really a lot of very unique insights on how humans in general are very capable in adapting to these extreme environments and i think this is something that yeah not a lot of people realize uh, and that has a lot of applications for terrestrial medicine as well because of course uh, we can really do fundamental research in space that that hopefully can also help a lot of of, of, of patients and, and people on earth and in, in the human physiology field, for example, I think of elderly people, I think mm -hmm. of immobilized people. Um, so, so there's a lot of things that we try to target with that. And I think that is what I find most fascinating about the work. It's not only doing research for space. Of course, that is a very important aspect, but it's also doing research for Earth. And I think we, we, we need to realize that sometimes a little bit more. That's fantastic. Uh, Angelique, um, you know, we, we went over a lot of experiments that, that, uh, as part of alpha and some, and some recent experiments, but, um, I, I, I wonder if there's anything that you in particular are looking forward to for, for future missions, uh, whether, whether it's on ISS or, or, or the moon or, or wherever, but, um, particularly in, in your field, is there anything that you're, you're looking forward to, to working on, uh, in the near future? Yeah, I think uh, the preparation of the, the lunar missions is, of course, very fascinating. And uh, I think anybody who is working in the space field is, is looking forward to to resume those, let's say, lunar missions. Mm -hmm. And especially from a science perspective, these will yield an enormous, you know, new influx of, of, of data and insight. And I think it's going to be very important for the scientific field across all the different disciplines that are, that are you know, uh, applicable in, in, in space missions. So I'm definitely looking forward to, to that. Uh, and yeah, I think that that's all really very exciting. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll leave it there, Angelique. Thank you so much. Uh, this was this was super insightful for me. Um, I'm, I was happy to have you on and just get a, a different perspective, uh, making sure we're getting a, a round view of just what is the space industry. And it is truly an international community. So I very much appreciate your time uh, calling in from the Netherlands today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you learned something today because uh, talking with Angelique, I learned so much about the European Space Agency, how it works. Um, I, I had a general sense, but never really got to go that in depth. So it was an absolute pleasure to have Angelique on today to describe it. There's a lot going on board the International Space Station and that the European science aspect is just one of those things. So to get the full perspective, go to nasa.gov ISS. 
We're, of course, one of many NASA podcasts across the whole agency. You can check us all out at nasa.gov slash podcasts. That's where you can find us in our full collection. Listen to them in no particular order. We have full transcripts of every episode if you're interested. If you want to talk to us, we're on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show, and just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on September 22nd, 2021. Thanks again to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norma Moran, Belinda Polito, Rachel Berry, Aaron Anthony, Nicole Rose, and Adelaide Thomas from ESA. And of course, thanks again to Angelique Van Ombergen for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.